Hello, and welcome to this Bible study. Today, we are going to be covering Exodus chapter 10, in which we are going to be talking about the plague of locusts, which is plague number eight, as well as the plague of darkness, which is plague number nine. The plagues are getting steadily worse and worse and worse. And there's a lot to cover. It's rather dark, um, no pun intended, but things are going to get worse and worse and worse in Egypt. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, why don't you join me in prayer, and then we're going to open it up uh, to Exodus chapter 10 and see what God has to share with us today. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for the means that we have to be able to do these studies. Thank you that we are able to um, take the time. I pray that you will bless this time, that you will speak through me, that I will be an instrument of proof, that these will be your words, not my words. And Lord, I pray for the person that's listening right now, that, that you will soften their hearts, open their ears, open their minds, and teach us something about your character and your will. We dedicate this time to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we got some ground to cover. So uh, join me, and we are going to read uh, the first 20 verses of chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh. I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I perform my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, so they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians. Something neither your parents nor your ancestors have ever seen from the day they settled in this land until now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go, worship the Lord your God, he said. But tell me who will be going. Moses answered, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh said, The Lord be with you if, you let you, if I let you go along with your women and children. Clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you have been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over Egypt, so that locusts swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. Verse 13, So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. 
They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail. Everything growing in the fields and the fruit of the trees, nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. Verse 19, And the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt. And verse 20, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. A plague of locusts. Okay, so let's go through this and talk about this. A lot of things to cover and talk about as we go into this. Uh, at the very beginning, we hear God say, I have hardened his hearts and the hearts of his officials. When I read that, you know, there's a challenge there. And we've talked about this before. We've talked about this from the very beginning of the plagues. Before Moses even talks to Pharaoh, God tells Moses that I will harden Pharaoh's heart. It's not until Exodus chapter 9 um, that we see God say, I hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardened his heart. Up until that time, Pharaoh has been hardening his heart. But we see here God intervene and God steps in. Pharaoh is a puppet. Pharaoh is put in this position as we talked about last week uh, to perform the signs. God is using him to show his greatness, to show who he is to Pharaoh, to Egypt, but most importantly to the Israelites. And as we're going to see here, it actually says, um, so that I may perform these, perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with Egypt. This is the first that we've had of a telling of the generations. The idea is, is that this tale, this story of what God did in Egypt is to be told over and over again. We right now in reading this and studying this are fulfilling this, that this is to be read to your children and your grandchildren of how I dealt harshly with Egypt and I perform my signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. Those people who say, you know, God's not fair. God's not fair. Who is God to to change someone's mind. What, what chance does Pharaoh even have? God's manipulating him. He's God. He's God. Romans, Paul says in Romans, uh, I got it written down here, Romans 6, excuse me, Romans 3.23. Paul makes it clear, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death. It's blunt, but it's truth. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short. We are all guilty. We are all deserving of death and punishment. Pharaoh is no different than me, is no different than anybody else on that economy of scale of sin. If you try to do good deeds, there is, there's, you can't do it on your own. You can't, by good deeds, make your way into heaven. There's only one that ever did that, and he's Jesus Christ. And it's through him that we have what's called imputed righteousness, he died one time for all, one sin, excuse me, one sacrifice for all sin. So those who say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair for Moses to, 
manipulate Pharaoh, excuse me, God to manipulate Pharaoh in this way. In Revelation, when the plagues are being poured out, which are somewhat similar to these plagues, it's the great tribulation in which there's the, the, the seven bowls of wrath are being poured out. And in the throne room of God, just and righteous are your judgments. And Revelation describes in great detail the judgment that is going to be poured out on a sinful, Christ-rejecting world. Just and righteous are your judgments. Even in that situation, even those who are judged will realize that, no, God is just in his uh, judgments. So based on that, uh, you know, we, we, we have pity on Pharaoh, but Pharaoh is simply a puppet. He is a tool that is being used by God. And Pharaoh has no, no choice from here on out. God will continually hard his, harden his heart. And we're going to see his, we, we heard his officials say, let them go. Do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? The people around him in chapter 9 and the people around him in chapter 10, the, the officials, the servants, everyone is blown away by this. And we're actually going to see um, in chapter 11, we're going to see uh, pretty early on that the Egyptians themselves look favorably on the Israelites as well as on Moses. They see the truth of the Hebrew God being who he says he is. And all of this happens because Pharaoh hardens his heart and then God solidifies it even more to bring about all of these plagues and all these different things that, that are happening. Uh, okay, so continuing on, it's a dark opening, I know, um, but we have a great finish today, uh, a very dark and light um, finishing up today. Sorry. Uh, verse 2, I mentioned already the reference to the generations. This is the first mention of the fact that um, what happens in Egypt is meant to be shared from generation to generation. Now let's talk about locusts. Okay, so locusts are, it's actually a grasshopper. It's a form of a grasshopper. Locusts are grasshoppers that have the potential to form a swarm of thousands to hundreds of thousands of individuals. They undergo phase polymorphism, which means that they can change from a solitary form into a gregarious form, meaning they congregate in large numbers. These have a different color and different behavior when they're in the large numbers. The solitary form is scattered and blends into the environment. The gregarious form arises from an increase in population density, which causes the locust to aggregate. Locusts need to multiply, concentrate, and aggregate for swarms to form. Three, so I did a Google search for uh, swarms of locusts uh, in the history of the world. And Wikipedia, I'm just going to show this really quick. I love the fact that at the very top of this, the very first one that's mentioned, for those people that are listening to the podcast, the very first swarm that is mentioned of locusts references the Exodus. Now it says not validated, but I love the fact that the very first swarm that is mentioned um, is referencing Exodus and what we're talking about right now. I think that's pretty cool. Don't know how long that's going to stay in there before uh, they pull it out. But there's three um, swarms that I want to mention that happened in history. Uh, 1875, Midwestern U.S., 
Albert's Swarm is what this one is called. It's named after Albert Child, who calculated the size of the swarm to be 1,098 square miles. Excuse me, 198,000 square miles. Not, two, not 1,098, but 198,000 square miles. For reference on size, Texas is 260 square miles. I keep screwing it up. Texas is 260,000 square miles. California is 155,000 square miles. New York State, which we live in upstate New York here in the Capital District, is only 47,000 square miles. This swarm uh, estimated to have 3.5 to 12.5 trillion, trillion locusts in it covering a, 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 a square footage that is um, larger than all of California. Uh, it's amazing, amazing. 1915, the Ottoman Syria infestation. From March uh, to October of 1915, swarm of locusts stripped areas in and around Palestine, Mount Lebanon, and Syria of almost all vegetation. This infestation seriously compromised the already depleted food supply of the region and sharpened the misery of all the Jeru Jerusalemites. Uh, historian Zachariah Foster argues that the scale of the attack was far worse than anything Syria had witnessed in many decades. He suggested further that a huge percentage of the region's major foodstuffs and sources of livelihood, including fruits, vegetables, legumes, and fodder, were devoured by the locusts. The attack diminished the 1915 winter harvest, wheat and barley, by 10 to 15 percent, but he noted completely wrecked the 1915 summer and autumn harvest. Fruits and vegetables in ranges varied from 60 to 100 percent, depending on the crop. And then the last one to mention is in recent uh, time, 19, excuse me, 2019 to 2022 East Africa locust infestation. Between June 2019 and February of 2022, a major outbreak of desert locusts began developing threatening food supplies in East Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, and the Indian subcontinent. The outbreak was the worst to hit Kenya in 70 years and the worst in 25 years for Ethiopia, Somalia, and India. By the end of 2019, there were swarms in Ethiopia, Somalia, Kenya, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Egypt, Oman, Iran, India, and Pakistan. In April of 2022, travel and shipping restrictions precipitated by the spread of COVID-19 began to hamper efforts to control the locust, preventing the transport of pesticides, equipment, and personnel, and contributed to the global incidence of COVID-19-related food insecurity. It eventually officially ended in February of 2022. To describe and paint a picture of what this is like, we're going to flip over to Joel. I'll give you a second to get there. Joel is near the end of your Old Testament. Joel is one of the minor prophets. Uh, minor, not because it's less significant, but minor simply references the size of the book. Um, Joel is only four chapters long, um, but it gives, excuse me, three chapters long. It's only three chapters, but Joel gives an amazing description of a locust swarm that wreaks havoc on uh, Canaan. 
And what we have here in Joel, I'm not going to do an extensive study on Joel right now. I'm not going to camp out on that. We've got way too much ground to cover. But there is an element where the first chapter of Joel is talking about an actual locust uh, swarm that has attacked the land. Then we have from verse 13 through 20, a call of lamentation and a call of repentance and then you see uh, chapter 2 talks about a future plague, a future uh, strife that's coming in which Joel references this as the day of the Lord. Now, there's discussion about whether this is the future day of the Lord, which is often referred to when Jesus comes back, and we're talking about Armageddon, when Jesus comes back as the Lion of the tribe of Judah and brings down his wrath. Uh, but this could also be a picture of the Assyrian army uh, coming to overpower or the Babylonians. Um, there's discussion on that. I'm not going to get into that. But the imagery that Joel uses to describe this is vivid. And I just want to read this. So um, we're going to do read Joel uh, 1, starting at verse 6. This is as he's describing the swarm of locusts. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. That description, there's so much we could go into this and I'm not going to because uh, our study would go for hours, but this description is so vivid. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. This paints the picture. Joel does such a good job of painting the picture of what a locust swarm is like. That is what was unleashed in this eighth plague. And a warning was given, and this did affect everyone, both the Jews as well as the Egyptians. Now, before, when the warning is given, uh, verse 13, um, a few things to talk about. Uh, verse 13, God brought the locusts in with an east wind. So likely they came from the Arabian Peninsula somewhere. If you look at Egypt, um, an east wind would blow the locust in from the Arabian Peninsula. And then verse 19, God took them out with a west wind out to the Red Sea. God is clearly using a natural occurrence. Locust swarms do happen naturally. They happen, but the timing of this, God is using his creation, a natural occurring thing, but the timing of it, the fact that Moses comes in, gives a warning and says, this is going to happen tomorrow, and boom, on cue, it happens, but also the way it leaves. Um, verse 19, not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go. It comes and it goes because the locust swarm is under the control 
of God. God is using his creation to bring about his glory in showing what he is capable of doing. Uh, also, an interesting thing to note, um, Exodus 14.21, we'll be there in four weeks-ish. Don't know how long we'll camp out on um, the Passover, but the parting of the Red Sea is described as being caused by a mighty east wind. Same wording that we have in verse 13. Okay, verse 7, the Pharaoh's officials plead with him. Uh, Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man snare, be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord your God. Do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? The people see it. They know what is happening. And especially because certain plagues have not had an effect on Goshen and the Israelites have been set apart. And the timing of it, especially the, the Pharaoh's officials that are in the court, in, in his high court, when Moses comes in and says these things are going to happen, they know what's happening and they're no doubt talking about it. And they're saying to Moses, excuse me, they're saying to Pharaoh, why don't you just let them go? But Pharaoh, as, as we started on verse 1, Pharaoh's heart has been hardened by God. God is going to see this through to the very end. Okay, verse 8 through 11 is an interesting little piece here. Um, Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, he said, but tell me who will be going. Now, this is before the locust plague is released. This is just after the warning. Pharaoh is listening to his officials. His officials said, do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? Just let them go. And so Pharaoh calls them back and he says, so you, yeah, you're good to go. Uh, who's going to be going? And then Moses answers, we will go with our young and our old, our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Then there's this interesting verse. Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you if I let you go along with your women and children. Clearly, you are bent on evil. Now, this term, the Lord be with you, I think it, it throw, threw me off when I first read it. One of the things that I like to do is read from different translations um, constantly. So when I'm doing um, Bible studies, I'll have Blue Letter Bible up and I'll, I'll, I'll click on any time I have any question whatsoever. I'll click on the, uh, the comparison to see that verse in multiple different translations. Let me read. This is the uh, New King James. Uh, let me find it, 1010. Then he said to them, the Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware for evil is ahead of you. So this is, adds a little bit of clarity. He's not saying, the Lord be with you. It's not a happy thing. It's saying, the Lord better be with you. He, it's, it's a threat. He's saying that, that you have evil at mind. You're trying to trick me is basically what he's saying. Then he said to them, the Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware for evil is ahead of you. Next one I want to read is the uh, Life Application Study by, this is the New Living Translation, which really this goes for thought for thought in the word for word versus thought for thought comparison. The goal here is to, uh, for the New Living Translation is to make it um, each big picture thought to flow as it would in modern translation. And I love the way that they say this. Pharaoh retorted, 
the Lord will certainly need to be with you if you try to take your little ones along. I can see through your wicked intentions. Never, only the men may go and serve the Lord, for that is what you requested, and Pharaoh threw them out of the palace. The last translation that I want to read is the Amplified Bible. I love the Amplified Bible because what it does, it actually adds to the text in parentheses different meanings of the words and different ways things can be translated. So it gives you the text that you can read um, without the parentheses or you can read it with the parentheses. I am now going to read it with the parentheses and it, it, it just adds clarity as you, you read. So 1010. Um, Pharaoh said to them, the Lord be with you to help you if I ever let you go with your children because you will never return. Look, be forewarned, you have an evil plan in mind. No, go now, you who are men without your families and serve the Lord if that is what you want. So Moses and Aaron were driven from Pharaoh's presence. This makes it very clear, and I like what this says, is because you will never return. We see what's happening here is, is that... Um, it's this negotiation that keeps going back and forth. And some believe that this actually is God uses this to harden Pharaoh's heart, this back and forth of this, well, we just want to go on this three-day journey to worship the Lord. And it, 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 it's this negotiation that almost sounds like a toddler negotiating for a cookie from the parent. Like, oh, I want this, I want this, blah, blah, blah. It also, to be honest, when I was reading this, what immediately came to my mind, we, not just, but we, the last study we did was going through Genesis. Jacob, the heel snatcher, young Jacob and his uh, scheming and swindling um, to get the birthright from his brother, to get the inheritance from his brother, the negotiator. So what Pharaoh is trying to do here is he says, okay, the guys can go, but no one else can go. And Moses says, no, we all need to go and worship. And notice, he also says here that we need to bring our flocks and herds. That's going to come up uh, in the future as we continue. So let me just check my notes. Okay, so then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Uh, Pharaoh's upset, uh, and he drives them out of his presence. Um, and then... God unleashes the locusts. The swarm hits, destroys everything. And what does Pharaoh do? Verse 16, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Uh, this sounds just like verse 27 of last week, chapter 9. This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Pharaoh, it's the same thing over and over again. It reminds me of an addict who will say anything to be able to get that next hit. I don't know if that is a proper illustration. It's just what came to my mind of someone who will lie through their teeth. And as soon as um, the plague was lifted and all the locusts disappear, Pharaoh uh, reneges on his uh, statement and he does not let the Israelites go. Okay, what Egyptian gods could have been challenged through the plague of locusts? 
Three gods in particular jump out as being um, attacked through the plague of locusts. We've t talked about this before in Exodus 12, 12, which will hit probably two weeks from now. God says that he is doing all of this. One of the reasons is to show an attack on the Egyptian false gods, um, the pantheon of gods. And so each week we look at the plague and ask, well, which god is being attacked by this plague? This swarm of locusts that devours all the agriculture, all living life. There's three, uh, Nut, Osiris, and Set are the three gods. Nut is the goddess of the sky. Um, this is a swarm of the sky. That's logical. Osiris is the god of agriculture and vegetation, as well as fertility, the dead, the afterlife, and resurrection. And then Set is the god of deserts, storms, disorder, and violence. All three of these gods are clearly connected um, with this swarm that comes across the sky of locusts that devours everything. Okay, let's continue on to the plague of darkness. Exodus 10, picking up on verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use them, excuse me, we have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Verse 29. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. That last verse of chapter 10 is an interesting one. If you read ahead you see that Moses continues to talk to Pharaoh. We'll talk about this next week, but verse 4 through 5, um, excuse me, 4 through 8, are Moses talking to Pharaoh about the plague that is about to hit that is the worst by far. And it is the one that eventually, um, it's the 10th plague. It is um, the plague on the firstborn and also leads to the discussion of the Passover, which we'll talk about in the preceding weeks. But I do believe that um, the beginning of 11, Moses is still in Pharaoh's company because um, he's still there. And at, at verse 8, all these officials of yours will come to me bowing down before me and saying, go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. So um, let's talk about this. The plague of darkness. No warning is given, and this only affects Egypt. 
uh, verse 23, we see that Israel is spared from this one. Um, and the darkness is described as being able to feel it. A darkness so dark that you can feel it. I don't know if you've ever been in a cave that goes down really deep where you take corner after corner after corner and then you turn out the lights. Um, true darkness uh, where your eyes are open but you can't even see right in front of your own hand until you turn on a light. Um, this is very significant. This plague as the ninth plague is very significant. And the reason why it's significant, God is going back to creation. Genesis 1.1, how does that go? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the deep. The Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters, and God said, let there be light. The first thing that he creates in the dark void of creation uh, is light. This plague is a reversal of that. God has been using his creation to, to show his power, to show his glory. And now he has taken away the light from Egypt. And they are um, entrenched in darkness. Let's talk about the Egyptian gods. There's a few more things to talk about, but, but the Egyptian god that is clearly being attacked here is Ra, the sun god. The most significant and important of the Egyptian gods is Ra. He was one of the most important gods in ancient Egypt religion, uh, identified primarily with the noonday sun. Ra ruled in all parts of the created world, the sky, the earth, and the underworld. He was believed to have ruled uh, as the first pharaoh of ancient Egypt. He was the god of the sun, order, kings, and the sky. Ra was portrayed as a falcon and shared characteristics with the sun god Horus. At times, the two deities were merged as Ra Horakiti, Ra who is Horus of the two horizons. In the new kingdom, when the god Amun rose to prominence, he was fused with Ra as Amun-Ra. Ra's local cult began to grow from roughly the second dynasty, uh, establishing him as a sun deity. By the fourth dynasty, pharaoh, pharaohs were seen as Ra's manifestations on earth, referred to as sons of Ra. Ra was called the first king of Egypt, thus it was believed pharaohs were his descendants and successors. His worship increased massively in the fifth dynasty when Ra became a state de deity and pharaohs had specially al aligned pyramids, obelisks, and sun temples built in Ra's honor. The rulers of the fifth dynasty told their followers that they were sons of Ra himself and the wife of the high priest of Hyliopia, Hyliopolis. These pharaohs spent much of Egypt's money on sun temples. This attack on the sun is an attack on the most significant uh, lowercase g god of Egypt, Ra. And Pharaoh saw himself as deity, a son of Ra. And it, a, a, 
um, manifestation of God in him, in Pharaoh, it's understandable why his pride was so extreme. He considered himself to be deity. He considered himself to be empowered by Ra and Ra in the flesh, so to speak. So it's understandable why um, he hardened his heart so extremely. By bringing the darkness for three days, which is a whole tangent we can talk about, three days, Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days, Jesus in the tomb for three days. You can, we can do a whole separate study on that. I'm not even going to go down that, that tangent. But that three days of darkness further solidified to everyone in Egypt that this God of the Hebrews, the God of Israel, is real and is the great I am and has power that no Egyptian God has, power over the sun, which was their greatest resource. And the, the king God, Ra himself, couldn't compete with the God of Israel. And that is the point. That is the whole point of all of this, is to show God's power and his might. Uh, a few other things to hit on before we close and wrap up. Um, 1024, Pharaoh is always the negotiator. Go worship the Lord. You can bring your women and children this time, but you can't bring your flocks um, and your herds. But the sacrifices were critical in Hebrew culture for their worship services. Pharaoh knew it. Moses knew it. And so Pharaoh's request he knew all Pharaoh is looking for here is something that will ensure that they stay. As the uh, Amplified Bible pointed out, his fear is that they will leave and not come back. If he, uh, in the first segment, if they, if Pharaoh, excuse me, if Moses brings the women and children with the Israelites, what reason would they have to come back? And so now he lets the women and children go, but he's got to have something that ensures that his slave labor. Um, the massive number of Israelites, which is believed to be upwards of, I think it's 3 million, uh, might be 2 million. Uh, I don't remember. I'll, I'll put it down here. I'll do the research and I'll put it in the notes. How many uh, um, Israelites are believed to have left at the Exodus? The number is staggering. And we get that because the Bible specifically tells us how many men, not including the women and children, and just through simple math of husband, wife, average number of kids is where you get the millions that were living in Egypt. It's understandable why Pharaoh didn't want to lose his free slave labor that are building all of these temples to the sun god Ra. Okay, um, verse 27 through 29, uh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh sends Moses away with this warning, get out of my sight, make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Uh, yeah, Pharaoh is clearly um, pissed and kicks Moses out, but not before Moses has um, gives him one final warning of the plague of the firstborn that is going to come, and both part angry. Uh, we see from verse uh, 8 of chapter 11, hot with anger, Moses leaves Pharaoh's sight. And from the words from verse 28 of 10, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Tensions are so high. And the, no doubt one of the pressures that Moses feels is he sees 
the torment that is on Egypt. He sees what's happening. He sees the people dying, the land being destroyed. He sees the suffering that's happening and he knows what's coming. He knows um, the number of people that are going to die in this final plague and it's got to break his heart. So to wrap up, I want to do an interesting um, little tangent here that is an illustration of how important it is to focus on context. So I'm going to pause our study and dig into this just a little bit. won't take me too long, but this is phenomenal what God did in my preparation for this study. So I was doing a search. When I do a study, uh, I have my Bible out and I read it over and over again every day leading up to the prep of the study itself. So um, the day before we film is when I do all of my prep. The week leading before that is when I'm reading through uh, and praying over the scripture over and over and over again. Every morning at breakfast, I read it and I jot down questions that I have. Then the day before, I dig into commentaries and I dig into the scriptures and I start following all of the rabbit holes, so to speak, that we get from our references. So I'll also have my computer up and I'll have Blue Letter Bible up, as I've described. I'll have um, multiple different um, browsers open, ready to do searches. So I wanted to paint a picture and have a illustration of darkness. Locusts, uh, I did a search and that's how I found Joel. I, I did not remember in all of my studying that Joel painted such a, uh, an amazing picture of the locust but I found it by doing a search for locust in the Bible and found Joel. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. This is perfect. So I was doing a search for darkness to be able to describe, see if the Bible describes darkness, the darkness that you can feel. And Isaiah 8.22 came up. So why don't you join me and flip over to Isaiah 8.22. I'm going to leave a marker here. Isaiah 8.22. Isaiah 8.22 Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. I like that. And when I first did the search for it, I was online. I didn't take the time to flip to it. When I'm looking for quick references, I use the internet. I use Google because, uh, or, or excuse me, I use Blue Letter Bible or a, a Bible app to quickly search and find things because it's faster than me flipping through. But when I want to get the context of what's around it, I'll flip to the passage itself in my Bible and I'll read what's before and after it. There were three passages that popped up as good references for darkness. There was one in Zephaniah, there was one uh, Isaiah, which is the one we used, and there was another one, um, I don't remember where that one was. But I wanted to read the context, and so I opened it up, and immediately the chapter heading of Isaiah 8, 19 says, darkness turns to light. I'm like, huh, okay, interesting. So let's back up and read verse 19 through verse 22. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should, should not people inquire of their God? So context here, mediums and spiritists, 
uh, who whisper and mutter. These are um, similar to who Pharaoh had, his magicians, his sorcerers. Um, these are cult worships, the, uh, um, Baal worship. They're necromancy, speaking to the dead to be able to get uh, insight, demonic type things. Uh, why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. For those that are listening to the podcast, I'm pointing at my Bible. Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. How much context does that give? That illustration is so much better. When you first read 22, it's just a fearful gloom will be thrust into utter darkness. And then when you read the preceding passages before it, it's talking about those who rely on false religion, false hope, false speaking to the dead. But even today, I would say those who who look at the prosperity gospel, those who listen to self-help, where you can do it, you can be the better you, you are strong enough, you are good enough, and gosh darn it, gosh darn it, people like you. Little uh, SNL uh, reference from Saturday Night Live got in there. The point being, what happens if you look to false things for your hope, for answers. That is the darkness that you will encounter. Those things are false, and, and, and though they might for a brief moment seem good, they don't provide. They don't provide the living water that God's word does. As it says here, consult God's instruction in the testimony of warning. That's this book. It gets better. Keep reading. Chapter nine, nevertheless, There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land, a deep darkness, of deep darkness, a light has dawned. When I read that, I just, I, I made a yelp. I, I honestly made, I was so excited. Um, flip with me to Matthew. Going to the New Testament. We're going to go to Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Matthew chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. We're getting close, guys. But this is so good. This is so good. God clearly lined this up for me to share this. Verse 15 of chapter 4 of Matthew, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So there's a reference here. Matthew cites this verse. Okay, great. Why is that significant that Matthew cites Isaiah 9? Um, and references this. Well, what's the context of where we're at right now? Matthew chapter 4, 
Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Jesus goes out into the desert wilderness and he doesn't eat anything for 40 days. And at the end of that time, Satan appears and tests him. It's right at the very end of that that we hit verse 12. Uh, excuse me, verse 11. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. Verse 12. When Jesus heard that John, this is John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee and the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. He goes out, is tempted by Satan, and then just before he starts his ministry, this verse is referenced. What happens in verse 18? As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, and they were fishing. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and here we have Scripture, the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah, though he didn't know it at the time, the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write word for word what he is writing. A time is coming when the land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, will be a blessing. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. John 1. Flip a little bit further in your Bible. It's the last of the Gospels. The book of John, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him everything was made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That quick little search that I found of, of Isaiah 8:22, just a brief little description of darkness, fearful gloom, in reading before and after it, we realize that, that the darkness that's described in Isaiah, the darkness of pursuing things that are of this earth, answers that are of this earth, answers that come either from demonic or just from self-help books, that darkness is overpowering. But to those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. And that is Jesus Christ. The reference then to Matthew and the fact that, that that verse prophecy is fulfilled just before Jesus's ministry. Then we flip over to John and look at the description of creation that John gives at the beginning, talking about 
God coming down, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that he is the light of all mankind. It all connects. It all points to Jesus. It just, I mean, it's just powerful. It's powerful how all these things connect. When you're reading, don't just read the one line. Read the context of everything that's around it to, to get the full picture of what God is trying to say. In Exodus, God shows his power. He exists and he is in control. His creation is his creation to do with what he wants. But then in Matthew, we have the gospel. We have God, the light, coming into earth to live amongst us, that none should perish, that none should live in darkness, that none should live that way, but should have the light that is given to us through Jesus Christ, that light that, that becomes a, a river of living water that pours out from us so that we are not engulfed by the darkness that is engulfing Egypt in this ninth plague. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you how miraculous it is, at, at how it's all connected. It's impossible for this to be chance. I just, I praise you, Lord, and I thank you that you love us, that you care about us, that you came to earth to die for us, and that you have given all mankind the opportunity to, to witness and be part of your light. I praise you, Lord. Thank you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, uh, we go on to chapter 11. It's a short one. Uh, it's only, I think, 10 or 11 verses. But I will go into chapter 12 as well. It's talking about the final plague, and we're getting into uh, Passover, which is an amazing picture there's so much to cover between now and uh, the eventual parting of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. So um, feel free to read ahead. And I love you guys, and I'll see you next week.